Welcome to the stage, our illustrious associate pastor, Mr. Brian Fox. jumps on stage. We'll see. So at this time, if you would raise a toast to the greatest country in the world, as the music plays, one of the favorite musical uh, renditions that go along with your fireworks displays of the weekend. Here we go. Well, again, we just celebrated the 4th of July. In fact, many of you uh, are part, or, or were, were able to have an extended weekend so that you're still celebrating. Uh, kind of stretched it through Friday and into Saturday because, you know, weekends are the best time to blow things up. Uh, but, uh, so the 4th of July, the birth date of our nation, which happens to be the most powerful, influential, wealthiest nation in the world, a nation that prides itself on independence, freedom, competitive excellence, and generosity. And at this point, I can just hear the chant rising from the audience, USA, USA, U. Jacob, where's the flag now? Okay, no flag. All right, well, as the chant slowly fades, can you tell I'm trying to set a mood here? I want to remind you of the title of our new sermon series. Joel has mentioned it, kind of stole that, but Smashing Our American Idols, which began with this statement, our American idols are people, positions, possessions, or pleasures that we pursue in place of God. Lots of P's there. And all idols must be smashed. Wow, what a bummer. I mean, we, we just spent a, a period of time, a day, a weekend, depending on who you are, uh, celebrating a wonderful nation. And again, guys, I consider myself a patriot, though not first and foremost to the U.S. My, my first and foremost commitment is to the kingdom of God as a patriot member of that kingdom. But I believe in our nation. I believe it is the best nation, though there are issues and, and we recognize those. I've been in quite a few other countries and I don't really want to live in any of them. I like it right here, okay? With that said, there are three topics we try to avoid in polite conversation. Religion, politics, and money. And this morning I plan to talk about all three. <laughs> so being the person who hates conflict, who's really uncomfortable with controversy, 
and, on, and in treading on private matters, I have to say too often I make money an idol. So there's my confession. Again, raised very middle class, raised by an accountant who, uh, who within that middle class, you know, was very conscious of money and, and wanting to have enough. Uh, a mom who was raised in rural northeast Texas on the farm, a dad who was raised in the shadow of Highland Park, which was the old money part of Dallas, where there are truly mansions, multiple rooms, 10, 15 bedrooms, same number of bathrooms to accommodate. Uh, my dad's boss actually lived in one of those places, so I am aware of it. Um, so, but we, we grew up, again, in, in what I thought of as being very middle class. And so it wasn't, I, I've never thought about myself as being someone who had a lot of money or who was wealthy or rich. And then I made the mistake of going to the Philippines in the 80s as they were literally just coming out of what was uh, recognized economically as a third world country. Try explaining to a young man, a young college student in the Philippines, that you're not rich. When he asks questions like this, well, like, how many people live in your house? Well, it's just our family. There's just five of us. Oh. And do you have your own car? Well, yeah, yeah, but... But I, but I mean, I bought it myself. I had to pay for my own car. And, you know, I mean, do y'all ever, have you ever missed meals? No, but we eat a lot of casseroles and, you know, like hamburger helper type stuff. I mean, I kept trying to justify in every way that I wasn't rich. And the more he asked, the more I thought, I'm rich. There's no, there's no way around it. In comparison to him, there's no way around it. It changed the way I saw the world, and it changed the way I saw my own life and, and who I was. So with that bit of intro, let me pray. Father, we thank You for the place and the time in the station that you've placed us in. Even as we sit here to celebrate you and to focus on you, we sit in an environment that is normal to us, that is unusual in most of the world because the air conditioning continues to work even though we use fans to move it around. <laughs> We are a blessed nation and a blessed people. And we recognize that. And Father, within that context, context, I ask You to help us look at Your Word honestly and openly in regard to this topic of money and wealth. Holy Spirit, You come and, and do what You want to do. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so again, our series uh, is, 
is based on, we're working from a book, is kind of a guide called Counterfeit Gods, written by Timothy Keller. And Keller says that money, as an idol, is the most deceptive idol in the American culture. Now, here's why. Innumerable, innumerable writers and thinkers have been pointing to the culture of greed, as they call it, that's been eating away at our U.S. culture and has brought about economic collapse just in the sense of debt and those kind of things. Yet, no one thinks that change is around the corner. Why? It's because greed and avarice are especially hard to see in ourselves. I find it ironic that the currency of our nation states, in God we trust. While a Princeton professor of business and a U.S. economist, Paul Krugman, writes this regarding the country's changes in attitude regarding money and wealth, we should not think of it as a market trend, like the rising value of waterfront property, but it's something more like the sexual revolution of the 1960s. It's a relaxation of old strictures or rules, a new permissiveness. But in this case, the permissiveness is financial rather than sexual. He, said, he says, greed hides itself from the victim. The money God's modus operandi includes blindness to your own heart. So one of the deceptions when we think about money or greed in particular is that we are able to compare ourselves to the people around us. And yet it's always easy to find people who make and spend more than we do. In fact, we tend to live in neighborhoods of people who are in similar socioeconomic status as us. And yet even in, those, in, in that situation, we could look around and go, well, you know, those guys that used to be my neighbors now live in a big house out in the country in some acreage. Oh, sorry. Sorry, Phil. Um, <laughs> what? Who, who was he talking about? No, again, it, you know, it's, it's common. Because there are plenty of people that make more than us. There's... There's not a single one of us in this room that would consider ourselves rich or wealthy in comparison to our nation. And so, by able, because we're able to look at others, point, pointing fingers at those others than ourselves, we take ourselves off the hook. Shannon and I both work, and together we make a, what's defined as a middle-class income by American standards. Now, last year we had one son attending a private Christian university and another son in daycare. Yeah, so it didn't really matter what we made. It didn't seem like it was enough. In fact, I don't really recommend that. Try to get those in a space where they're not right on top of each other. But, you know, we're... We look at ourselves, we're just trying to pay our bills. We're just trying to get by. And in that circumstance, again, as I know most of you, and I know the lack of extravagance by which you live, 
it's hard to see ourselves as rich. On the other hand, here's a different perspective. The median annual income in the U.S. is approximately $61,000, meaning half the people in the U.S. each year make more than that and half make less. The median annual income for the world is approximately $9,700, meaning half the people in the world annually make more and half make less. By the world standards, we're all rich. Do you see how easy it is for our perspective to be skewed? Satan can take that and it just takes a little turn, a little twist, and all of a sudden, you know, I'm just getting by. And yet, There is nothing inherently wrong with money. I state that unequivocally. If you've got some extra day and you want to give it to me, that'll be fine. There's nothing wrong with it. It's our attitude and the way we view it that makes it the idol. And so that's what we want to look at today. And just, again, ask some honest questions. Again, questions that I am very uncomfortable with for two reasons. One, because again, I don't like controversy and conflict. And secondly, because I don't really like conviction. (laughs) And I have a hard time preaching this when I don't think it's something that I do well. So. In this series, we've defined an idol as anything you seek to give you what only God can give. If God is to be our true Savior, then we cannot look to financial prosperity to give us peace and security or a sense of being in control. Neither can we look to money to provide our sense of confidence and safety. So we ask this simple question, does our peace, our security, our confidence and our safety come from God or from something else? And specifically this morning, the question is money. So here's the fill in the blank to get you warmed up, get you feeling warm and fuzzy this morning. The idol of money hides behind comparison, entitlement, and the fear of dependence. Again, Keller said it's the most deceptive of idols. Joel mentioned this morning as we were talking about a statistic that he recently read that said more than 60% of baby boomers feared running out of money before they died more than they feared death itself. Now, being a baby boomer, I can validate that fear. I'm close. I'm in the last two years, but I'm, I'm definitely in that way a boomer. And being at a place in my life where, again, I can see retirement age, and I do say retirement age specifically because I don't know that that will ever be my retirement, but being at a place in life where I can see that, I, I, you know, I struggle. I get anxious. I worry sometimes. And the thought of running out of money 
so that I have to become dependent even on my kids, and it's okay, again, kids, if you're helping your parents, praise God, that, that's a biblical concept. But I don't want to do that to my kids. Again, we already know in our family, myself as a pastor, my wife as a Christian school teacher, one son who... Uh, at, at this time has all of his hopes and dreams on being a pastor, the other is a music major, and finally we have the welder who will end up supporting all of us. <laughs> it's, we joke about it all the time, and yet we know that there is a great amount of validity to it. And thank goodness, of the, of the group of us, he's probably the most generous. So, so that works in our favor. And I don't know, I don't think Joel's here. I didn't see him when I came in. But uh, anyway, oh, in fact, I know he's not. I just remembered he's, he's at a wedding in Dallas. So anyway, I want to state again, I want you to hear it. There's nothing wrong with money itself. It's greed or the love of money that's referred to numerous times in the Bible as idolatry. In the book of Luke, Luke, the gospel writer, he makes the topic of money or riches a main theme in his gospel. He refers to five teachings of Jesus more than any of the other writers that warn against greed and the error of placing faith in money instead of God. Now, those are just the specific teachings. He actually alludes to it more than ten times. Speculation on my part. Luke, as a doctor, probably understood the struggle of money more than the fishermen and the other guys that were hanging around with Jesus. In Luke 12, 15, Jesus says, again, Luke's recording of this, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. In Luke 16, 13 to 15, he says, No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now the Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and, and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. And note that he specifically did not say the fact that you're wealthy or the fact that you have money. He says your love of money is the way it was recorded. And then one of the most difficult stories in the New Testament for American Christians is found in Luke 18. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony and honor your father and mother. All these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. 
When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very poor. Oh, wait, very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Christians have struggled with this teaching to the point that at some point in history, I, I, I couldn't find where this came into being, but I've heard it taught from the pulpit that there was a gate in Jerusalem called the Camel Gate. And, and the thing was, when Jesus taught this, and the idea of the camel going through the eye of the needle, which is the next thing He says, was He didn't really mean that it could never happen that the rich could enter heaven, but that in this situation there was this gate and the camels would try to go through with all their bags, they're a beast of burden, all the stuff loaded down. They had to take all those things off and then they could squeeze through the gate. And that it's, it's Jesus' way of saying, you've just got to rid yourself of all those things so you can get in. Anybody else ever heard that? Gate doesn't exist. There is no gate in Jerusalem called the Camel Gate. There is nothing in biblical teaching to suggest that that, 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 that is an appropriate um, explanation of what Jesus is saying here. But somebody felt the need to soften what they saw as harshness in what Jesus is teaching. The Jesus that we know is a Jesus of mercy and love and compassion. Well, certainly He didn't mean that if you've got money, it's hard to get into heaven. That, that's too strict. That's too harsh. <laughs> no, I don't think so. But neither do I think that that means that all of us in the U.S. are condemned to hell. <laughs> Again, over and over as Luke talks about it, he refers to greed and the love of money. And the biblical reference to that is very plain. It's not just about having money. It's about whether money has you. So let's look at Jesus' interaction with a man who was ruled by greed and see what we can learn from that. Let's start in Luke chapter 19. Again, all the passages that I just reminded you of and referred to are preceding this. And in fact, his interaction with what we know as the rich young ruler, some of our, the headings of some of our Bibles now just say uh, the young ruler, um, happens just before this interaction with a man by the name of Zacchaeus. So Luke 19, 1 and 2, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, seeming to indicate he was just going to make his way through, wasn't planning to stay. But a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. Wow. How would you like for that to be the, the identity that followed your name? I mean, it's one thing to be you know, doctor, professor, pastor, but the wealthy chief tax collector. <laughs> yeah, see, that one doesn't ring so respectfully. And it didn't back then either. 
What in the world would possess a man to take a job as a tax collector? A job that involved taking money from your own people and your own nation to benefit the Romans who control your nation. Why would anyone do that? (laughs) Yeah. Money, 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 money. Again, the rule was that the job of this guy was to get whatever Rome needed, but whatever he could take over and above that, he got to keep. Again, I, I don't want to be cynical, but I am. So I'll just go ahead and throw it out there. Does that not sound like some of the interactions we have with people in our culture today? Here's what it costs, but whatever I can talk you out of. So, <laughs> like I say, I, I'm not proud that I'm cynical. I just know myself well. So I just, I'm not going to hide behind that either. Anyway, the only reason for taking this job, and again, the, lots of speculation, lots of sermons I've heard about, well, because he was short, which we'll read later, he probably had you know, short man syndrome, and he felt disrespected, so he took this job because it was the way he could find respect. I, I don't know, maybe, but ultimately, the only reason for taking the job was greed, because the job was going to separate you from the rest of the people around you. It was going to put you into a category of being the worst of the worst, a betrayer of the nation. Though none of us here would, would be identified in our country as filthy rich, we still have to ask ourselves the question, is our dependence on God or on money? And as we look at Zacchaeus, recognizing him being even identified by those around him as the chief tax collector and wealthy, brings us to that question. You know, money is an unreliable source of worth or identity. Now again, what does that mean for you? Is it important to you and does it require money for you to to represent represent yourself in the way that you want to for other people. And again, the next question is not me asking you, it's you asking the Holy Spirit. Where is, where am I in that? What does that mean for me? Again, this is this I, I can't preach this sermon without confession. There are times I'm embarrassed by the old truck that I drive. When I go to do weddings or funerals, I swap cars with my wife who has the newer, nicer vehicle because I'm, I, you know, the preacher showing up in a 94 
you know, ragged looking, belching white smoke, Chevrolet truck. It just doesn't look right, does it? Uh, Gordon says, yeah. <laughs> yeah, in Texas, maybe. Um, yeah, it just, but it doesn't feel right. And so I honestly just have to ask the Holy Spirit, you know, speak to me. Now, where it's a matter of safety, I won't send Shannon for any distance in the old truck anymore. Because I, again, if it breaks down, I'll take care of it. Even if that means walking away. <laughs> Which could very, which it could mean. I mean, I'll call my mechanic, have him pick it up to take it to the scrapyard. But, but I don't. Again, for this, for the sake of safety, I wouldn't send her, you know, for a long distance in it. And, and I don't feel a tinge of guilt or shame about that. But just the fact that you know, if I'm meeting with somebody who's wearing a suit or that's expecting me to have some level of professionalism. Yeah. That's the that's where I have to look at myself. And if I come to the conclusion that my worth and my identity are somehow wrapped up in that Okay, then the the Holy Spirit and I have something to work out. So, Hebrews 13 says this, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Or what can mere breakdowns of my truck do to me? (laughs) So there's where we start as we look at Zacchaeus. A point of evaluation. This is how Jesus dealt with this man. Am I willing to just ask the same question? Lord, where, where do I stand before you? But then the story goes on. He wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was, because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead, climbed up a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. And when Jesus reached that spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and he welcomed him gladly. So Zacchaeus, a man of great wealth, a man who probably is not concerned about what people think when he climbs the tree because he's gotten used to not worrying about what people think because they all think he is a a treasonist, that he's betrayed the country. I mean, at some point you quit worrying what people think, right? And yet, he's he's heard about this guy Jesus enough that he's he wants to see him. 
He's heard enough about this guy, Jesus. I don't know if he's been out to hear him preach before. It's possible, again, Jesus did a lot of teaching around Jericho and in those areas. But today he wants to see him. There is a desperation in him. He has great wealth, more than he could ever spend, more than he could ever use. And yet, there's still something missing. He's discovered that wealth won't fill the hole that he feels. Zacchaeus, with all of his wealth, longed for more. And because of that, he wants to see this guy, Jesus. Ecclesiastes 5 says this, Whoever loves money will never have enough. And whoever loves wealth will not be satisfied with it. This is also useless. Again, written by King Solomon, probably one of the wealthiest wealthiest men who ever lived based on what he attained and, and what, you know, extrapolations we can make with his money then and what it would relate to now. Because money can never satisfy the heart's deepest desire. It gives you a whole lot of things to hide behind. It gives you a whole lot of things to to keep you busy, to satisfy urges and desires, but there's always something missing. And I don't say this lightly. I don't bring this up. But there there was a task force created in Montgomery County to try to stem suicides for particularly teenagers in Montgomery County. The majority of those suicides are not happening in Conroe and outlying areas. They're happening in the woodlands where people have everything money can buy seemingly. And yet people have no thought of religion or wealth and how those things mix are saying we got to try to do something about this because there are a large number of teenagers losing hope and yet they have all that money can buy some of the people in our church are actually have actually volunteered to be a part of some of those task force and some of the things that are being done there Because money never satisfies. <clears throat> you know, again, as Joel and I, usually the, the sermon prep team, there's six or seven of us. This week, it's just Joel and I. And Ashley. Sorry. As she's working, again, she, she's working on keeping our PowerPoint and keeping up with, with the functional side of it. Joel and I are hashing things out. And he mentioned this morning, you know, it seems like dependence on God is easiest to find among the poor. Where your next meal, where you're you're trying to figure out, again, survival is based on God showing up and giving you what you need, right? And desperation is maybe easier to find among the rich because they've had it all and they know it doesn't doesn't last. It doesn't fulfill. 
And then that leaves most of the rest of us sitting here this morning in the middle class <laughs> where it's comfortable. Would we like to have more? Yeah, probably most of us. Would we? Are there things we could enjoy? Sure. But again, it puts us in that middle where it's kind of hard to see the difference. And guys, I live right in the middle of that. What Shannon and I make is very close to that median uh, that I gave you earlier. Paul, in writing to Timothy, says this. Again, a young pastor working in... Uh, in an area with a lot of Greek uh, Christians and, and where money was, was probably more available than it might have been around in, in the Judean area. He says, the love of money causes all kinds of evil. Some people have left the faith because they wanted to get more money. They've caused themselves much sorrow. But you, man of God, run away from all those things. Instead, live in the right way. Serve God, have faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Again, good reminders and, and, and good encouragement for us today. And so now that most of you are completely depressed and wondering why you showed up after a wonderful weekend of, wonderful long weekend of celebrating, there's good news as we look at the rest of the story. Now, all the people saw this the fact that Jesus has told Zacchaeus he's going to spend the day with him, and they began to mutter, He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay them back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So once, by the invitation of Jesus to enter into relationship, once Zacchaeus had that, he recognized that money was his God, and his response to Jesus' invitation was to use his money to help the poor and to pay restitution to people he had cheated. Now the law of Moses, again, Zacchaeus being a, a good Jew, the law of Moses required that if you cheated somebody, the restitution was to be twice, two times. Zacchaeus says, I'll pay back four. Because now that Zacchaeus knows Jesus and his identity has shifted, it's not a matter of how much do I have to give, it's how much can I give. How much can I joyfully give? How generous can I be? What can I do to show people that my life has changed?
A 16th and 17th century, century English philosopher and statesman, Sir Francis Bacon, said this, Money is a great servant, but a bad master. So money that belongs to God will not own us and is enjoyable to give away. Again, the key to getting rid of money as an idol is generosity. But we cannot become generous people until we recognize, generous like God is generous until we recognize it all belongs to Him anyway. And guys, in America, that is not something that's easy to understand or to wrap our minds around. I've mentioned this before, but the three years that I was out of full-time ministry, um, with the fact that a Bible degree really is not marketable outside of the church, uh, <laughs> I made very little money. I didn't make enough money to really live on. It was by the grace and the compassion of Many people, including some of you that are in this church today, that we, again, got through those three years raising three small boys, living here in the neighborhood. And it was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. <laughs> there were nights where, by God's divine intervention, all the bills were paid, and I knew the only way that happened was because he stepped in, and then there were the nights that I was waiting for him to step in and do it again, <laughs> and I hated it, because I had never lived dependent on God. I walked out of college into a job that provided all my basic needs, working with churches that were generous throughout that period of time, I had honestly never been financially dependent on God. Now again, it's easy to recognize that in my head. I could read the Scriptures and hear the sermon and go, oh yeah, God's the one who gives it all to me. But I'd never had to wait and, and consider that this bill might not get paid unless God does something miraculous. Like somebody dropping an envelope through my mail slot that was within a few dollars of being exactly what that last bill that I hadn't paid the night before. Yeah. And again, it was wonderful from a spiritual perspective, and it was horrible from a human perspective. <laughs> Hated it. But if we can change our attitudes, if we can come to that true realization that everything we have is given by God and belongs to Him, 
then I really believe that this last statement is true. When it belongs to Him, it will not own us, and it's fun to give it away. I love spending other people's money. It's the best way to spend. I love it even more when my wife spends other people's money because it means she's not spending mine or ours. Woo! Ours. <laughs> yes, that's a conversation we've had. And now we'll have again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> When we're in a place <clears throat> that we have a plan and we have money set aside that we know is just money that we're going to give away, it's awesome. I love doing that. We talk to you guys about tithing. We, we make no um, concessions that we teach that tithing is, is something that the Bible teaches and it's something that uh, as Christians, we ought to be involved in. And so, and, and I, within that context, I just feel like I have to tell you that, again, living in that middle class, uh, I went back and, and checked the numbers, uh, but as one of your pastors, I, I tithed to this church last year. And again, I don't, I'm, I'm not saying this to brag, I'm saying this. <laughs> because sometimes I have to get rid of that privateness in my own life and that concerned about what everybody thinks, but we gave 11% back to the church here, and we gave another approximately 2.5% to other organizations, charities, uh, because I believe in it. It's changed my life. A trip to the Philippines and, and as a college student deciding that tithing was truly a biblical concept has has changed the way I see money, and yet, <laughs> as I've already confessed, I still have to be reminded. I still have to say, Holy Spirit, is this a controlling thing, or is this legitimate? And you're the only one that he, He'll talk to about that. Well, I mean, unless it's really obvious, and then maybe I will, but no. Here's how Paul, as he's finishing up that letter to Timothy again, in the circumstance Timothy's in, he says, Command those who are rich with things in this world not to be proud. Tell them to hope in God, not in their uncertain riches. God richly gives us everything to enjoy. Tell the rich people to do good, to be rich in doing good deeds, to be generous and ready to share. And by doing that, they will be saving a treasure for themselves as a strong foundation for the future. They, then they will be able to have the life that is true life. Not give it all away, not become impoverished, but just be ready to give, be generous, and be ready to share.
I pray that we can all, again, look honestly and openly at our lives and at our circumstances and, and come to the conclusion that our identity is not wrapped up in it. Our, our value and our worth have nothing to do with money. Our dependence is on God. And that that frees you then to find what Paul describes to Timothy as the true life or the good life. John Wimber taught about giving, and again, I didn't, I didn't know John, but everything I've read indicated that they were, they were quite comfortable in the way they lived, but in no way extravagant as, they, as it could have been uh, because of money that came in from songwriting, from books, from those things. So he used to read this verse, you know the grace of God, the, sorry, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, you know that Christ was rich, but for you, he became poor, so that by becoming poor, you might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. And what he would follow with after reading that Scripture is, if God didn't hold back His very best, His own Son, why would you think He would hold back money from you? Stand with me. This morning, I, I thank you for, uh, for listening. I thank you for <laughs> staying. Uh, <laughs> as we talked about a difficult subject, as again, we uh, crossed those polite conversation boundaries to deal with things that are very private and yet things that are very biblical. I just want to take a minute, literally... 60 seconds, and give you the chance to just ask the Holy Spirit, does any of this touch you? Does, is any of this, you know, uh, resonate? So let's do that right now. Come Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, as you move and live and interrupt our, our thinking. We confess that we live in a culture that, that struggles with making money an idol, but we, we honestly ask, where are we? Is it true of us? And if it is, show us. Holy Spirit, I pray that, that there would be no guilt or no shame involved in it, that it wouldn't be something that, that comes up in that way, but it would just be a recognition. And then like Zacchaeus, we would find our way uh, to you, knowing that once we give it all over to you, everything comes into its right place. Help us to be generous individually. Help us to be generous as a church. Show us what that looks like.
In Jesus' name. This morning, I'm going to ask the ministry team to come forward. If the Holy Spirit, if you feel like He's speaking to you about that, you may want to come forward. Uh, If you're on the ministry team and you want prayer for that, obviously that's appropriate. (laughs) There may be somebody there, uh, again, it it may be a conversation that, uh, that you need to have with your spouse. There may be somebody else, again, that you're just closer to, that's standing close by there, that you want to ask to pray. And again, as your pastor, all I'm asking is that you ask the Holy Spirit that question openly and honestly as you can, recognizing that we can deceive ourselves. And this morning, again, for those of you that are, that are in places of financial struggle, let's pray about that. For those of you who are struggling, again, in your body with, uh, again, the betrayal, you don't feel like your body is responding <laughs> as it should, uh, we believe in healing. We believe in the healing of hearts and the healing of idols that have interrupted our relationship with God But we also believe that God shows up and sometimes He just fixes that knee that's messed up or that shoulder or that back. So, let me pray a blessing over you again. And you can come forward now if if there's something on your heart. And again, I just thank you for being here. Father, we come because It is our desire to live and to to be found in you to such a degree that our lives are changed. We want our lives to be about more than than just survival and more than just enjoyment. Lord, for those who are here this morning that need a financial blessing, I pray that you would give it to them, and I pray that they would just have a great time giving some of it away. Prove yourself in that way. Reveal yourself. Thank you for this group. Bless those, Father, even as a large number of our leaders are traveling uh, to be a part of National Conference. uh, Bless them. May they come back refreshed and renewed. And for, the, for, for this group that goes now, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, be blessed. Amen.